Today is the last in our series, Looking for Direction, in which we reflect with different Bible stories and see what they teach us about how to find direction in our daily lives. Today we are hearing a story that I think is familiar to many of us, the woman caught in adultery. It begins actually at John chapter 7, verse 53, and goes on into chapter 8, 1 through 11. Then each of them went home, while Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They said this to him to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let anyone who among you who is without sin cast be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down to write on the ground while they heard it, when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on do not sin again. This is the word of God for all of us. Thanks be to God. I ask you please to pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O God, thou our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I've gotten hooked on the novels of an Australian novelist, Leanne Moriarty. She writes books where you just get drawn in with plots that pull you in and you get fascinated by what's going to happen next. I'm in about the middle of a book called The Hypnotist's Love Story. So if you've read it, don't tell me the end. I'm not there yet. <laughs> but the hypnotist's love story begins with Ellen O'Farrell, who is a hypnotherapist and has a very happy, uh, independent life and a good therapeutic practice, but she'd like to meet a good man. She ends up meeting a man named Patrick, and from the beginning, she really likes him. They go on a date, and they just click, but he lets her know there's one thing that's a little strange, and that is that a former girlfriend of his is stalking him. Now, he hesitates in sharing this with her because he knows this could be a deal breaker. She could just find it too weird and she's done. But he, she says, you know, that's fine. I can deal with it. You know, he assures her that he's, the former girlfriend is in violence. It's just a very frustrating situation. As the story continues, she really falls for Patrick, but she finds herself increasingly fascinated about this stalker. So at the beginning, it looks like Ellen O'Farrell, successful hypnotherapist, normal person, and Saskia, the stalker, wackadoodle. <laughs> you know, let's just stereotype them. As the story continues, start realizing that 
Ellen is getting more and more fixated on the stalker. She wants to know about her. She's more curious. She keeps hoping that she'll turn around and actually see the stalker. And as the book progresses, the stalker actually starts getting a little bit healthier. Now, I don't know how this is going to play out. I'm not there yet. But I'm struck by the way that we may have labels on people, but they may not be the totality of who they are. That may describe a particular circumstance, but not all of who that person is. And that example strikes me as we reflect upon the story of the woman caught in adultery. When we start out the story, it looks pretty obvious. You've got the scribes and Pharisees, they're the good people, the religious leaders, and you've got the woman caught in adultery, the sinner. It's obvious. But as we continue to work through this story, we start seeing layers of nuance which make what each person is a little more complicated. And more than that, gives us a whole new take on who Jesus is and why he came for us. I want to reflect with you first just a little bit on the passage itself and its history to reflect on the different ways it's been interpreted over time, and then to bring up some angles that might be a slightly different way of perceiving what goes on in this story. First, the story itself. Some of you may notice that if you look this up in your Bibles, it's often bracketed off. This is uh, one of those passages, and probably the most strongly, the strongest example of this in the Gospels, where we're not quite sure that it fits there. There's real debate over whether this passage belongs in the Gospel of John. It turns out that the earliest manuscripts of John do not include this story. They go straight from John 52, then they restart at what we would consider John 8:12. So this isn't in the earliest versions. Perhaps it's not originally from John, or perhaps it got added in later. We're not really clear. There are elements of the story that don't seem that much like the Gospel of John. In fact, some people make a strong argument for this being from Luke. For example, there's a reference to the scribes and the Pharisees. This is the only place in the Gospel of John where there's a reference to scribes. In the Gospel of John, we hear about Pharisees and Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, but John doesn't otherwise refer to scribes. In addition, this idea of the religious leaders trying to trip up Jesus, that's a very common motif in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It would make a lot of sense for this to have come from those, what we call the synoptic gospels or the gospels that see things in the same way. Doesn't real, this isn't a common motif within John. So we don't know exactly where this belongs but it has come to reside in the Gospel of John, and you could make a good argument looking at the passages before this and after this that this is where it belongs. But when you see it in Bibles, you'll often see it bracketed off. There's a question about this. However you look at its kind of questionable origins, this is one of the best love stories in the Bible. People love this example of Jesus's mercy and that line, let the one of you who is without sin cast the first stone. That's a passage that shows up not just in biblical literature, but in fiction, in movies. It's, it's a motif that speaks to something in our hearts. It gets repeated a lot. So the tradition of Christians throughout the centuries has made this core gospel, even if there are questions about its beginning. It's a deeply loved passage. So what's it about? 
Well, this was an interesting piece. I love this story. I had an image of it, and I'm guessing I'm not the only one who remembers biblical stories a certain way. And then when you read it again, after a while you realize, oh, I, I never noticed that part. So I remember that in the story, Jesus plays in the dust. I remember that part of it. I didn't remember that it happened twice. There's something that's happening in this story that's easy to overlook, that gives us a richness and a depth to what Jesus is doing. A simplistic way to look at the story is, this is the story about that evil, adulterous woman. And look, Jesus forgives her. That's kind of layer one. Wow, if Jesus forgives her, Jesus will forget, forgive anyone. Layer one. And some people have looked at this story. Uh, there was a quote in the uh, New Interpreter's Bible commentary that had a quote from the novelist John Updike pointing to this passage and saying, see, Jesus doesn't really mind sexual sins very much. That's a nice, convenient way to think, look at it, isn't it? So there's that layer. Or the second layer is, this passage isn't really about the adulteress, it's about the scribes and Pharisees. The whole point of this story is, look, don't be hypocrites, don't be so ready to throw a stone at someone else. Let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. This is all about hypocrites and hypocrites in faith. I would argue that this is about neither of those things and both of those things, that there's a different angle to this story, something more powerful going on. This isn't letting adulterers off the hook, nor is it the story primarily about shaming scribes and Pharisees. It's neither of those. It's about Jesus's way of dealing with each of us where we are. It's too easy for us to look at life in a simplistic way and to think Jesus doesn't have anything to say to us. Well, I'm basically a good person. Why do I need Jesus? Or, I'm a terrible sinner. Jesus would never talk to someone like me. From both of these stances, we're dismissing what Jesus could say. What we find in this story is Jesus has something to speak to all circumstances of life. He addresses us where we are and gives us opportunities for repentance. So let's go back and look a little more specifically at the elements of the story. In come the scribes and Pharisees. They bring a woman with them, and they point out that she's been caught in adultery, and they want a ruling from Jesus. That may look pretty simple on the surface of it. And they say, you know, Moses says she should be stoned. Now, if you go back and look at the passages to which they're referring, there are passages in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, but they're a little bit different from how the scribes and Pharisees are citing them. In Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it isn't just the woman you stone, it's both of them. If you've caught a woman in adultery, you've also caught a man. Where's the man? So you start asking questions. Are they picking on this woman and there wasn't a man? Or if there was a man, why didn't they bring the man? And Deuteronomy and Leviticus make it clear that the first stone is thrown by the witness. Where's the witness? The scribes and the Pharisees aren't saying that they're the ones who caught her. It's confusing. So maybe... This is just as the scripture tells us that they're trying to trip up Jesus. Maybe that's 
what's going on because they don't quite, maybe there's no witness. Maybe none of them caught her. Why didn't they bring the man? It's just dicey. There's something funny going on. In addition, Amy Jill Levine from the Jewish New Testament points out an important detail that in Roman law, it was not allowed to execute an adulterer. So maybe that's part of the trap. Under Jewish law, you would execute both adulterers when they're caught. Under Roman law, you don't practice execution. There's some other punishment, but not execution when adulterers are caught. So here come the scribes and Pharisees. They're loaded for bear. They're going to go after this woman, but they want Jesus to give them a ruling, trying to trip him up. What will he say? And Jesus doesn't fall for it. Jesus writes in the ground. There's been a lot of debate over time about what Jesus wrote. We don't know. Some people argue he wrote the name of the man that was part of the couple. Some people argue he wrote the sentence. There are all sorts of speculation. We just don't know. There's nothing that tells us what he was writing. But what it shows us is clearly Jesus was refusing to allow himself to be baited. Then the text tells us they kept badgering him. And so he straightened up and he said, let the one of you who is without sin take the first stone. And they melted away. And wasn't Scott's children's sermon wonderful, that pause? The children, oh, I'm not sure I've never done anything wrong. That pause that the children had, that's beautiful. That's exactly right, that oof, I've, I've done something wrong. And John tells us that it was the elders who left for the wisdom of elders who are less likely to lie to themselves, who know, you know, I've done some regrettable things, and pretty soon the crowd melts away. It's the first part of the story. For some of us, that's the part we fixate on, but the crowd melts away. But Jesus goes back and in the dirt again. And then he asks the woman, did anyone condemn you? And she says, no. He says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. In this passage, Jesus is giving her a second chance. But he's not saying adultery is fine. He's saying go and sin no more. She gets a fresh start. She gets a chance. This beautiful story turns our conceptions on its head. Jesus doesn't spend his time condemning the people who are self-righteous. He lets them condemn themselves. He puts his head down. He lets them keep face, and they melt away. In Wesleyan theology, we refer to this as justifying grace, the way that Jesus works in our lives to line us up with Jesus' desires. The scribes and the Pharisees recognize, oof, maybe I'm not perfect. They receive that grace and they melt away from their stance of condemnation. Jesus has acted powerfully for them. But Jesus isn't done with the scribes and the Pharisees. He also has a word for the woman. He invites the scribes and Pharisees to look back at their pasts. Have you always been so perfect? And then he helps the woman think about her future. 
He looks down, he writes in the sand, he straightens up. He says, neither do I condemn you. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't care about her sin. He cares deeply. He tells her to go and sin no more. He basically says, cut it out. But he doesn't condemn her. We think back to the way condemnation is that punishment, punishment unto death that the scribes and Pharisees were trying to get Jesus to enact, and he won't do it. He won't condemn her. That doesn't mean he won't acknowledge her sin. He just won't condemn her. It ties so beautifully with other passages in the New Testament. We think about the passage in Romans, for there is, that, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus sees us. Jesus gives us an opportunity to be freed of our sin. Jesus saves us, but he didn't condemn us. And the connection with John, most of us know John 3.16 better, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever should believe in him should not perish, but should have eternal life. But the next verse, 3.17, for the Father sent the Son not to condemn the world, but so the world might be saved by him. This is absolutely in line with who Jesus is. Jesus doesn't condemn the woman. He names her sin and he offers her new life. Go and sin no more. There are two interactions in this story. It's not just about the adulteress. It's not just about the scribes and Pharisees. It is about both. The people who think they're too good to need Jesus and the people who might think of themselves as beyond the pale of his caring. Both of them receive a word of grace from him. In both of them, they are forgiven in the case of the scribes and Pharisees, with that justifying grace that brings them back into line, being honest about who each of them is. And in the case of the woman, that saving grace that shows her it is sin, but I forgive you, and you have a choice. The scribes and the Pharisees and the woman who committed adultery all receive the possibility of freedom in Christ. He doesn't force any of them. The scribes and Pharisees could have said, I'm sinless, I'll start. But none of them did. They received that justifying grace. And the woman could say, I'm so full of sin, there's no hope for me. But Jesus said, go and sin no more. And she went. And we prayed that she sinned no more. Brothers and sisters, this is wonderful news. Jesus didn't come to condemn us. This isn't the simple stereotypical story about those evil self-righteous people or about that evil adulteress. It's about all of us, the self-right, those who are self-righteous and those who see themselves as sinners. And it lets us know that Jesus has a word for each of us. And that word is freedom. Yes, to look on our past and be honest, but also to step forward into a new future where we could make different decisions and sin no more. Thanks be to God for the freedom each of us may know in Christ. Amen.